All right, so Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers, the flowers fade away. The word of God stands forever. Let me pray before we uh, consider his word further tonight. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you don't leave us to wonder who you are and what you're like, but yet you reveal yourself. Um, Father, we have come, no doubt, for a, a, any number of reasons we've come tonight, but whether we know it or not, what we need more than anything else is to hear you, to hear from you, to know you. And so we pray that you would do that by your Holy Spirit, that you would show us yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you uh, would guess that you're familiar with who John McCain is, right? Senator, I guess he's still current senator. Uh, John McCain, he was a uh, Vietnam War vet. Um, and he was a prisoner of war for a number of years. I don't remember exactly how long. I think, I think like five years. He was in the, what they call the Hanoi Hilton. And I heard an interview um, sort of profiling his time there with him. And th- this is what he said. He spent the first two years of his captivity in solitary confinement. Okay? He spent two years by himself. And he said that the day that they let him out of solitary confinement... Even though he was going to spend, again, I think it was like three more years in a prison camp just with other prisoners. He said that that day was almost as exciting as the day he got back home to America. Not, not quite as exciting because obviously freedom is, you know, freedom. You can't beat it. But he said it was almost as exciting. Now, how in the world could that be the case? What is it about, you know, solitary confinement was in the news this summer, if you, uh, if you saw that. A guy in Louisiana who had been in uh, prison for 43 years, he'd been in solitary confinement for the whole time. And you could read lots of articles, you know, they got spurred up around that story about how terrible solitary confinement is for you. Um, it has all kinds of physical, mental effects. And all these articles would talk about how bad it is for you, and they would basically all sort of wonder, why is that? So why is it so bad for you? And really, I want to suggest to you that that's exactly what we're getting at here in Genesis 2 tonight. That what we read here is really going to answer that question and really help us understand ourselves. Um, That basically what we're going to see tonight is that you and I 
were built for relationships. And that we have to have relationship. We have to be in relationship with other people to be healthy. We have to. So right, this semester we're studying through the book of Genesis, right? The first book of the Bible, we're going to look at about the first half. And we've said every week, and we'll continue to, that Genesis is sort of like season one of all of life. Right? If you wanted to jump in uh, to a, a TV show that's currently airing, if you jumped in tonight and started watching an episode, you could figure out some of it. But the best way to know what's going on is to do what? To go back to season one. Right? Go back to the beginning, to the backstory. And that's really what Genesis is. If you and I want to understand the world around us and our place in it and who we are and how things operate, what better place to go than back to the beginning where it all started? And so that's what we're doing. And tonight we're looking specifically at the passage where God makes woman. Right? We talked about last week about who we are as people. And we saw that we're built to be in relationship with God. And then we're built to reflect him. And so tonight I want us to see that, that you and I are built to be in relationship with other people. And so we're going to look at that in two main headings tonight. First, we're going to basically look at why it's not good for us to be alone. Or why it's good for us to be with other people. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and then secondly, we're going to look at marriage. Sort of broad scale, right? One, one point in a sermon on marriage, we'll cover the whole thing. That's a joke. All right, so first, why is it not good for man to be alone? Um, if you recall from last week, or if you're familiar with the, with the text, you know that there's this ref, refrain that happens. God makes something on, the, on each day, and he says, and it was good, right? He recognizes the goodness of his creation. But then when we get to uh, what we just read in chapter 2, verse 18, what we read there should... In a sense, it should shock us, right? It should sound like the, uh, you know, the record scratching in the crowded bar, right? That scene in the movie where everything just stops. Because we've been reading, uh, God made this and it was good, and it was good. And then all of a sudden, God declares that something's not good, right? He says that it's not good for man to be alone, to be by himself. And now look, this didn't come as a surprise to God, of course, But it should slow us down for just a minute and think about, all right, why is that? Why is it not good for man to be alone? Well, last week we talked about the fact that we are made in God's image, right? It says, uh, God said, let us make man in our image. And we hit on this briefly, but we'll, we'll sort of focus in on it for just a second now. That that's God speaking the rest of the Bible would, would bear out uh, as a trinity, right? Fundamental Christian belief that God somehow, even though there is just one God, He somehow exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, in and of Himself, He has been always and always will be a community. So God, forever and always, has always been in a relationship with Himself. And he built me and you in that image, in his image. So we are necessarily built to be relational creatures. It's just who we are. It's not just some people's personality. It's fundamental to being a human being. Right? Just in the same way that you and I are built to breathe air, 
and not water. We're built to be in relationship with other people. So what kind of problems might this cause when we're not? Or really another way to say it is why are we, um, why are, uh, yeah, why is it not good for us to be alone? Why do we need community? Um, And I think I've got two or three thoughts here. One of them is this, that we need to keep in mind that to truly experience things like joy and love and beauty and glory, to truly and fully experience those things, it has to be done with other people, if you think about it. If you can't share something wonderful, then you're really not getting the fullness of it. Try to think about the last time that you were by yourself and you experienced something unusual, something really exciting. Um, you were watching a ball game by yourself and the ending was amazing. Uh, you got a test paper back, you thought you bombed that test, you got an A on it. Right? Something where you were by yourself and something that really fired you up happened. I would be willing to bet that one of the first things that you did was pull your phone out and text somebody or call them. I would do that. I bet you did. Why? Because you want to share it. It it doesn't seem the same if you can't share it with somebody. I was, uh, this is a sort of a self-serving illustration, but so in one of those rare times I got to go play golf, uh, I guess this was last year sometime, I was playing golf and I was by myself and I had this like 40-foot birdie putt Big, sharp break to the right, like 10-foot break, if you have any clue what that means. I make my putt, and it's just tracking the whole way. There's like two of you that know. I appreciate that. And it's just tracking the whole way, and it's it's just beautiful. And you can just tell, like, this is going to go in, and I drained it, right? I mean, I make one of those like every five years probably. So I make this awesome shot, and I'm, I'm thrilled. And I look up, you know, and it's just like, there's... Just me. <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh, all right. Well, time to go to the next hole. You know, there, I mean, not that we're going to throw a party, right, if somebody else were there, but you get the point, right? And actually, on the next T-ball, I texted my dad. Like, nobody else was here, but I just made a birdie. Um, you get the idea, right? And so if you and, I, you and I are built to reflect God's image, we're built to have a relationship with him, which means that we're built to enjoy his glory and his wonder and the beauty of his creation. And so really the only way that we can experience that is with other people. The only way that we can truly experience the fullness of that, of his creation, of of a relationship with him, is in the context of relationships. It's only when we can share it with other people. And I don't primarily mean like as in evangelism, like share the gospel. I mean share, uh, share the beauty of God's grace with one another. Share the beauty of His sovereignty with each other. Even share the, share the difficulties of life and how God sees us through those. So at the very least, it means that if you're a believer, then then you have to be in a relationship with other Christians. You have to be. The Bible really doesn't have a category for, the, for someone that is a believer, a Christian, and yet not involved with a church. It's just a category that just doesn't exist in the Scripture's eyes. You have to be in a place where you can come together and, and worship 
God corporately and experience that together. Where you experience His grace and His mercy. Where you get to see Him at work in other people's lives. Right? Yeah, He gives us this great thing called the church. Uh, A second, slightly different aspect of why it's not good for us to be alone. Because when we're alone, we also will not experience the fullness of of who we are. Right? Of, Of who you are as an individual. You'll, in a sense, rob yourself of the fullness of, of you and your potential. You've probably had the experience of, uh, of being with... You have certain friends that bring out certain sides of you, right? Uh, that person thinks you're funny in a, in a, in a unique way. Um, and, and when you're with them, there, there's a sense of, of you being alive in a way in which maybe you're not around other folks. Um, you know, one of the classic examples is... Uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien and a guy named Charles Williams, they were like best friends, right? So that's quite a a trio of folks. And they would hang out all the time. And uh, let's see, Charles uh, passed away. And so these three guys that were best friends and they're, you know, believers and they shared their lives together. So uh, let's see, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said he was, you know, he's obviously deeply saddened that his friend Charles has passed away, but he thought, well at least sort of one silver lining, so to speak, will be that I'll get more of Tolkien, right? Like, in, in a sense, I can have him all to myself, right? Not in a selfish way, but, um, but he said what he began to realize is that he actually got less of him because Charles brought out things in Tolkien that he couldn't. And so, in a sense, he was poorer for the community being smaller, He didn't get more, he got less. Like I said, you've probably experienced something similar. A third somewhat uh, thought along these lines. Why is it not good for us to be alone? It's not good for us to be alone because God is going to... God grows us in community. Relationships with other people is the context in which you grow as a person, as a believer. Right? If If you're like me, you probably default to thinking... Um, right, I want to be a more patient person. I want to be, uh, you know, I, I've got three little kids. That, that's a struggle for me. I want to be patient. I want to be, um, I want to not get so frustrated with my kids. Maybe you want to be more forgiving, right? More loving. And so we default to thinking that the way that's going to happen is, you know, we sit down and we get time to read our Bibles and we pray about it, which are very good things. And we basically think what, you know, the way it's going to work, God is just going to sort of change something. And, hey, I'm going to be more forgiving, right? I'm going to be more patient. It's just going to sort of happen here in my, you know, in my office, in your dorm room, whatever. But really, the way that that's going to happen, the way that God grows us, like, yes, do we need to read our Bibles and, and pray? Oh, absolutely. But... The way God's going to grow us is He's going to put us in relationships with other people that frustrate us. He's going to put us in relationships with other people uh, whom we're going to have to extend forgiveness to. He's going to put us in uh, relationships with people that are going to cause us to, now certainly empowered by the Holy Spirit, but that's the only avenue in which we're going to get better at that, right? It's got to happen in the context of relationship. So what does that mean? 
It means that you and I have to make sure that we're putting ourselves in relationship with other people, right? It means that you and I have to move towards other people, which can be really hard, right? Especially if you're, uh, especially if, that, if that's not, so, you know, if you're more of an introvert, right? Because people can hurt you, right? Uh, people probably have, people no doubt have hurt you, right? Because you're a person and you've related to some degree with other people. Um, and so, yeah, even when we can tend to shy away from relationships, we've got to see that if we, really want to, if we really want to experience ourselves, experience God, experience the beauty of creation, we've got to move out towards other people. And we've got to put ourselves with and in the midst of other people. Um, one thing I want you to see that this means, I guess sort of a somewhat random application, right? college can be a lonely place. And I want you to know at the very least, you're not crazy. Right? If you're thinking, yeah, I, I just don't have many friends here. If you're lonely, you're not crazy for thinking that. And, and what you don't need is to toughen up. Right? You're built for this. You're built for relationship. Um, and right, look... Think about this. This was all before sin was ever in the picture. Think about that. Right? How much, in a sense, how much more so, now that the fact that sin is in the picture, how much more do we need to involve our lives together, right? And so we've got to move towards other people. We've got to let other people know us. Do you have anybody in your life that can look at you and say the hard thing? Do you have anybody in your life that can look... Look at your life that knows you well enough and actually can and would look at you and say, listen, I, I, think, you're, I think you need to think about this aspect of your personality or the way you're doing this or whatever it is. Have you let people in enough that somebody could do that? Are you willing to do that with other people in love, Right? Because you and I tend to deceive ourselves, right? That's what sin sort of naturally does. We trick ourselves, right? You, you, we don't even know what we sound like, right? Like back in the days when we had answering machines, like it was probably before you were born, I guess. But, you know, I guess you have outgoing message, right? If you ever hear your own voice and you, if you're with people, you say, like, that's not what I sound like. And what do they say? It's exactly what you sound like, right? We don't even know what we sound like. So how can we really know ourselves? We need to be in community. All right, we see why it's not good to be alone. So secondly, let's look at this uh, concept of marriage. So here we see that, uh, we see that God creates, he says it's not good for man to be alone, and so he creates woman, right? And here we really have, so in a sense, the fundamental answer to man's loneliness is marriage. Now look, let me be clear to say that marriage is not the end-all be-all, and that that there's a difference between aloneness and singleness, right? That not everyone is called to be married. Not everyone wants to be married. And, and some people that want to be married may never get married. And that's not wrong, right? So I'm making a distinction between singleness, not being married, and aloneness, right? Or however you would say that. Um, not being in community. 
Because yes, God did say, it's not good for man to be alone, and so he gave Adam a wife. And so yes, marriage is a big deal, and we're going to talk about it. But he gave Adam a wife, and they created a whole lot of people, right? Thus creating community. So I don't want to set, as we talk about marriage, I don't want to set it up as, you know, the end-all, be-all, the Savior. But because, in a sense, marriage is, it might be fair to say, normative. And I don't mean like if you're not married or you never get married, you're abnormal, right? But that most folks are going to get married. And I think it's fair to talk about it here. Kind of dive in and look, see what it's all about. Um, Right, so before before he gives... Uh, before he creates woman, God does this sort of interesting thing. He has all the animals. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he brings all the animals, sort of parades them in front, right? Are any of these going to be a good fit for you? And he names them all, right? And, and it's clear that none of, them, none of them really are a fit for Adam. And so then he sort of goes into surgery, and he wakes up, and then he sees woman. And you almost get the sense that it's sort of this monotonous, like, because he's naming it, right? Giraffe, monkey, I'll call that a dog. This is all, I guess, in Hebrew. I don't know what it would have been back then. Um, you know, monkey, whatever. And then it's like, wake up, and then he's just singing, right? He just breaks out in this love song. This is the first poetry in the Bible, and presumably in history. It's when man sees woman for the first time. So what does he see? He sees this... He sees this he sees himself, in a sense. He sees something that's exactly like him and exactly opposite him. He sees somebody that God has made to fit him exactly. They're the same, and yet they're, they're different. God calls uh, the woman, calls woman uh, a helper fit for him. And lest you be upset by that, Listen, I want to make one point about that, right? This is not helper as in like I might call one of my kids like daddy's little helper, right? Like, so the woman is just sort of, you know, men are on top and then they, they have helpers and we call them women, right? That's not what's going on here at all. This, look, this gets abused all the time in that way, right? I'm glad we think that's funny because that's not the case, right? That same word is used multiple times in the Bible of God himself, Really what it means, uh, one guy said you could define it this way, I have it written down, I have quotes around it somewhere, oh, that it's one who, quote, provides what is lacking in the one who needs help, right? It's the one who fits him. They're equal, but different, right? I thought about it like, like, two, like the wings on an airplane. Are those the same thing? Yeah, but they're different, right? You can't take, can't take the right wing and put it on the left side and vice versa. Which one's more important? Well, actually, I kind of like them both, right? You get the idea. All right, so let's zero in very quickly and very quickly and talk about what marriage is. We get a, we get a glimpse of what it fundamentally is in 2, 24, and 25. Right? It's where a man and a woman take their two lives and they bind them permanently together. Right? They become one flesh. They take their lives and they bring them together in every imaginable way. They bring their lives together spatially, right? You live together um, physically, emotionally, spiritually. You take two lives and you bring them together, intertwine them, and you do so in such a way as to never pull them apart, right? That's the hold fast. The old translation would be like cleave, right? It's to bring two lives together and promise that they will never come apart. 
It makes me think about, uh, I couldn't come up with a better illustration. Uh, makes me think about like the stickers that kids get. So we got kids, you don't, we probably don't have kids, but the stickers that kids get, the cheap ones, that you put it on something, and, like I'm terrified of stickers at our house, right? Because you get a sticker on something, if it's a bad one, it's never coming off. It'll come off, but it still leaves that like white papery stuff, you know? Does anybody rec- Okay, 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 all right. Awesome illustration. So you get the idea, right? Something that it's meant to go there, but it is never meant to come apart, right? That's what, marriage is, uh, that's what marriage is like. And if it does come apart, there's damage. Um, and verse 25 tells us what's integral to marriage, kind of what's at the heart of it. It says they were naked and unashamed. Now look, this is before sin entered the world, but this is what marriage is designed to be. It's designed to be a relationship in which you've bound your life to one another in such a way that you can say it's a safe environment to say, this is who I really am. This is me, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And you can do that because they're not going anywhere, right? They're, you're bound together, and so it's a safe place to be vulnerable to say, right, the nakedness is a, is a it's like a physical outworking of the reality of what's going on, Right? Right, if you're naked before someone, right, you're very vulnerable. This is me, right? Here, you know, there's, I'm not hiding anything, right? You get the picture. It's a, it's a relationship in which you can do that and it's safe because they're not going anywhere. And they can do that with you. And so what that means is that first and foremost, marriage is really far more about commitment than it is feelings, now, you did not hear me say that feelings don't play any part in marriage. But that fundament, first and foremost, what marriage is, is a commitment. Before, it's feelings, right? And why is that? Because feelings go up and down. Feelings wax and wane, right? But commitment stays, right? At least in its design. It's not going anywhere. Um... All right, so let me do two quick applications about this. Man, we just we had to fly through this, but two quick applications, one about sex and one about dating, right? That should be remotely interesting. Um, look, understanding sex, number one. The only way that you, can, you and I can begin to understand what sex is and what it's all about is to understand the biblical understanding of marriage, okay? Two become one flesh, because like, like I've just tried to demonstrate to you, that's not just about sex. It is about that, right? Two becoming one flesh, right? That's what that means. But it's about more than that. So in other words, sex is really just a living illustration of what's true about two people. That's what it's designed to be, in a sense. It's like the glue in a sense. In some sense, it's like the glue that holds a relationship together because it's, it's enacting what's true about you. Right? When you get married and you stand up in front of everybody that you know and you say, I promise that I will never leave you, no matter what. And they promise the same thing. Right? You've, you've made that safe, safe relationship, committed to one another, that we're going to bind our lives together, and it's okay to do that. Don't you see how sex is really just, a, it's an outworking, an expression, an illustration of that truth. 
have you seen Vanilla Sky? This is somewhat old. Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz. Oh, it's just, you know, a little bit older movie now. But so in that movie, uh, Cameron Diaz tells Tom Cruise. She says that this quote is awesome. She says, "When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not." Look, that's gold right there. She doesn't know that she's like, that's just biblical truth. You see what she's saying, her character's saying. That when you sleep with someone, or, or you know, whatever, anything sort of in that realm, right? That your body is making a promise, whether you do or not. So what that means is that, that sex outside of marriage, it's not wrong just because God said, let's see, you know it would be, you know, it'd be kind of funny if I, said, if I said, like, you can't do this until you get married. Like, let's see how they handle that, right? Um, just, just kind of messing with them. That's not why sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's wrong because it's a lie, right? You're saying something is true with your body being what? I will, I, I will always be here with you. This is a safe place, and I will never leave you. And I'm binding my life to yours, when you're not. So, right, when that happens, it's only going to cause, it, it's only and necessarily going to cause problems. Right, we can't think of our bodies like uh, things that are intended to go together but come, like Velcro, right? It's meant to go together and it's meant to come apart. Legos, right? It's, more, it's much more like the stickers. All right, dating, quickly, quickly. All right, here it is. I could sum it up like this. Here it is. Write this down. This is genius. Dating is not marriage. Boom. (laughs) Let's pray, right? Now, look, that might sound funny. The more we could grasp that, the more awesome life would be, right? So, in other words, dating is not binding your life to someone in unbreakable commitment. So, two quick applications of that. Number one, go on dates with people. Ask people out on dates. Because why? It's not a big deal. It doesn't, it doesn't, you're not committing to one another. To go on a tenth date, you know what you've committed to? Nothing. Maybe an hour or three hours, whatever you said yes to. Right? Go on dates. And then if you do end up dating, right, in a more uh, consistent fashion... Just remember, that's not marriage. You haven't bound yourself to one another. So that means that you have no claim, no claim. And look, let's talk about this sometime, right? Let's, but you have no claim on their time. You have no claim on their body. You have no claim on their emotions. Because you haven't bound yourself to them. I hope that that is really, you know, spurs a lot of discussion. Go to community groups. Um, so, yeah, free yourselves up with that truth. So go on dates and, and date and then and get married. All right, let's end with, let me end with this thought very quickly. Um, we're built to be in relationships, right? But look, whether you get married and you find the greatest husband or wife on the planet, whether you find the best church with great community, it's still going to come up short. Right? There is no perfect spouse. There's no perfect community. Even though they're necessary, community in some form or fashion, right? Um, 
But you weren't just ultimately designed for a relationship with another person. And I want to end with this thought. That you're designed for a relationship, right? Really what we talked about last week, with a far more amazing spouse, which is Jesus. And now lest that sound corny and like a preacher trick, I want you to see it from the scripture. The Bible starts with marriage in a sense, right? Genesis 2, we're hardly into this thing and you've got marriage. Where does it end? Uh, Revel- it doesn't, 21, it ends with Revelation 21. Revelation 19, you know what you see? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus being wed to his church, to his bride. And all throughout, one of the main illustrations of how God loves his people is marriage. And in Ephesians 5, Paul is actually quoting from what we read in Genesis 2 about the uh, leave your father and mother and and, uh, hold fast to one another, right? He's quoting that. And listen to what he says. So he's talking about, um, yeah, all right, sorry. He quotes that and he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. See, Paul says, look, that whole like boy-girl dynamic, right? That, like, that's just wild, right? It's, it's powerful. He's saying as profound as that is, I'm saying that that's really talking about Jesus and his church. Think about that. That it's really all a pointer to how Jesus loves you. So what that means is that, you, that what you're really built for and what our our earthly marriages are designed to reflect is a Jesus that loves you in such a way that even though you and I don't deserve it, he binds himself to you and says, I will never leave you. I will never come apart from you, no matter what, because I love you. It means that he sees everything, right? He sees way more than your your earthly, your human spouse might see. He sees it all. And he looks at you and he thinks, you're amazing. That's what we're built for. For that ultimate marriage, so to speak. I have a great illustration we just don't have time for, but that's an invitation to you. You're invited. Jesus invites you into that kind of grace, into that relationship with him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the good news that you love us so much that you would bind yourself in marriage to us. That you love us so much that you, that you give us one another. Father, cause us to find ourselves in married to you and in community with one another. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.